Good to have you that are in the building. If you're following online, welcome. Reread a book that I had read a long time ago, a couple weeks ago, and as I was reading it, the main idea in the book, I thought, well, that kind of goes along with the, the, the message that I'm speaking this morning, and so I wanted to tell you the, the, the main idea of the book. It's this. The sky is falling. Now, some of you are looking at me like, what are you talking about? Others, you've already read the book, so you're not too alarmed. You know it's not true. The book I'm talking about is it's a book entitled Chicken Little. If you've read the book, if you may have had it read to you when you are a kid. Uh, great book. Uh, little Chicken Little is this rambunctious little chicken, and out one day playing and is under a tree and an acorn falls and hits Chicken Little on the head. Which just immediately Chicken Little perceives what's happening and, and begins running around announcing that the sky is falling. She gets Henny Penny and all these others and pretty soon it's a whole world movement. The sky is falling. And then they get to the fox's house and the fox says, uh, Chicken Little, I think that was an acorn. So, Chicken Little had a great heart. He wanted to get all her friends to know what was happening. Just was a little short on the message. Read another book this week that said something that is actually profoundly more sobering. And that is this. In fact, they're the words of Jesus himself. He announced to his friends that he was coming that he is going to return. Now, you may be listening this morning, you say, Pastor, really? Like, we've been hearing this for 2,000 years now, and it hasn't happened yet. In fact, I would venture to say that there are people here this morning or listening online, and what I just said, you actually believe it's true. You just struggle to believe that it's actually gonna happen. Well, it is gonna happen, but sadly, <laughs> To further diminish the credibility of Jesus' words, every few years it seems like some crazy gets up and announces not only that Jesus is coming back, but gives us the day and the hour. You may remember on May 22nd, 2011, it was on national television, a reporter, a journalist, knocked on the door of Reverend Harold Camping in Northern California. Why was he knocking on his door? Well, if you remember the story, if you followed it, Harold Camping, a, a pastor, 89 years old, had started a, a radio ministry, literally that spanned most of the United States, had a huge following, but he had, with his Bible and a, and a mathematic calculator, figured out with assurance the exact day that Jesus was coming back, May 21st, 2011. He had quite a following. In fact, some of his followers quit their jobs, cashed in their retirement, sold their houses, just to get the word out. They spent over $10 million, 5,000 billboards around the United States with the announcement. They made over 100 million pamphlets in 61 languages with save the date, Jesus is coming. <coughs> Excuse me. May 21st, the radio station that usually carried Herald's programs didn't have its regular programs. It just had 
some music, some devotional thoughts. The day came, the day ended. <coughs> Excuse me. So, the next day, early in the morning, May 22nd, there's a reporter knocking on Harold Camping's door. Comes to the door, and the reporter says, uh, Reverend Camping, what happened? Never forget his response. He just looked, and he said, you know what? It's been a tough weekend. <laughs> I think so. You know what? Harold Camping is not the first to figure all those things out. And if Jesus tarries, he will not be the last. Strangely, Jesus was so clear. He was not only clear that he's going to return, but he was so clear that nobody, not even the angels, knows the time or the date. But despite Jesus' words, over and over, we, we continue to try to figure it out. What gets lost in the conversation is the first part of the message, that Jesus is indeed coming. And we've been talking over these last weeks about, from the scriptures, life after death. What does the Bible say about it? Pastor Jonathan has been talking a lot about this truth that, that what comes after death is eternal. What happens before death, maybe it's 20 years, maybe it's 50 years, maybe it's 70, 90, it's God that makes that decision, but whatever that is, is actually really small compared to what comes after, but we spend most of our time and energy thinking about this. I was thinking about it this week as I was getting ready, and I thought maybe it would have been better to entitle this series Life After Life. Because actually, when the Bible talks about death, what it reveals is that the death is simply a doorway. In the Bible, death is never seen as a cessation of existence. It's never seen as a finality. It's simply seen as a separation. So in the, in the Garden of Eden, uh, Adam and Eve turned their back on God. And it says at that moment, death came into the story. It came immediately, not their physical death, but their spiritual death. They were separated from God. Eternal death is being not in existence, it's being separated from God. So, in this conversation, one of the important notions in the Bible is, is the coming return of Jesus. It actually goes all the way back, even before the coming of Jesus into the Old Testament. You read in the prophets, often they talked about the day of the Lord. So in their calendar, there was... There was just a couple days. There was the day that they were speaking, and then that day, which was way off in the future somewhere, what did it mean? What, what were they talking about? Well, it was this day in the future when God was going to intervene with judgment, and he would come in this new, this new reality, this new world, if you will, would come into being. They didn't fully understand what it was. They just perceived that it was coming. And then the Messiah came, Jesus, the Son of God. And he talked often about the day of the Lord, but announced that this day would be announced by the return of Jesus, the final coming of his kingdom. So the text I want to look at with you this morning comes from 1 Thessalonians. It's the Apostle Paul talking to a church in the first century about this very thing, about the fact that Jesus is, what, what does that mean? So he explains that in the text, and then he closes with these words of challenge, of 
conclusion, if you will. So I want to read the conclusion, and then we'll go back and look at the letter. This is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1, from the message. This is what he says. I don't think, friends, that I need to deal with the question of when all this is going to happen. You know, as well as I, that the day of the master's coming can't be posted on our calendars. He won't call ahead and make an appointment any more than a burglar would. The way it says it in the, the NIV is that he's going to come, but he's going to come like a thief in the night. So, the apostles, the, the early Christians, the, this church, they lived as though this event could happen any day. In fact, some of them were there. Acts chapter 1, Jesus is with his friends, and they're actually asking him, hey, when is this all going to happen? And Jesus talks about some different things that are going to happen and explains a little bit. And then right in the middle of the conversation, it says that Jesus ascended before their eyes into heaven. And they're standing there looking. And an angel comes and says, what are you guys looking at? Go. And then the angel says that the same thing that you just saw, Jesus ascending to heaven is going to happen in reverse. He's going to come back. And so they thought, well, that, we're going to be here. When that happens, like when they woke up in the morning, maybe it's today. That's how they lived. Well, now we're 40, 50, 60 years into the story, and they're, some of the people have died. Some of the people have been martyred. And when is this going to happen? Is this going to happen? It's into that that he wrote these words. So when you look at the New Testament, and it talks about this truth of Jesus' return, the first thing that's striking is that when they talked about it, it was not to inspire fear. Have you ever heard that before? Hey, brothers and sisters, Jesus is coming. And let me tell you when he comes. Well, it's true, he's coming. But actually, when the New Testament talks about it, it's very sober. But it, it was to bring hope and, and comfort and clarity. So I'm going to get to the end of the message today. You may still, after these couple weeks, still have some questions that are, what about this? What about heaven? What about good news? You got a great opportunity to ask those questions. You see next Sunday is Ask Anything Sunday. Uh, text in your questions. That would help us immensely. You see the, the number on the... If you text in a question, could you tell us, hey, wow, this is coming from the Olmsted Falls campus. This is coming from the Middleburg Heights campus. This is coming from Chicago. Wherever it's coming from, just let us know. Next week, Pastor Jonathan uh, will be taking time to not only answer those questions, but some questions that you may have as they talk next week. So, this morning, here's the news. Jesus is coming. And when he comes, all the earthly kingdoms, all the other crazy, will be silenced one time forever. So, let me look at Paul's words together. First thing that they announce is that Jesus' coming brings hope. How so? Well, in the book of Hebrews, it talks about hope a lot. But when the Bible talks about hope, it doesn't use the word hope in the same way that we do. They don't say, you know, 
I hope that tomorrow the sun's gonna shine. Might, might not. I hope it will. But, but th 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 that's not what he's saying. Hope in the, in the New Testament is sure. Like there's no doubt. It's just hope because it hasn't happened yet. So all of these things about the end, they're, they're what gives us something to stand on. Hope is only hope when it's grounded in truth. It's truth that gives hope to hope. Truth, er, without truth, it's hopeless. So here's the truth. Says this, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. His brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who have fallen asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. What is he saying? Well, as I said, a number of, of their number had died. They thought Jesus was going to come back. So if he does, what's going to happen to those people? And, and Paul says, no, no, no. Jesus has not come yet. That doesn't mean he's not coming. It just means he hasn't come yet. But let me explain to you what's going to happen. And he talks about learning to interpret your life, learning to interpret difficulties in your life with this in the picture, and it changes the picture. What does it mean that the Bible says that Christ will return? What's going to happen when it refers to the day of the Lord, what's going to happen in the day of the Lord? Well, there's two things in this text and that you find in the New Testament that he's talking about. The first is the day of the Lord is when Jesus returns for his people. Let me read it to you. This is, I think you can follow along on the screen or in your Bible. This is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning with verse 14. He says this, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of our Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that... We who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so, we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Wow, what hope. The day's coming when we're gonna meet Jesus in the air. Remember in the days after Harold Camping made his announcement, the newspapers, the news, they weren't very nice to him. Oh, this guy believes that Jesus is going to show up, and when he does, all these Christians are going to meet him in the air. Ha, ha, ha. Guess what? That is what's going to happen. Hadn't happened yet. But Paul says, it is going to happen. What hope? What hope? I often thought that on that day, you might not want to be in a cemetery. It might be alarming. Because <laughs> all those who are there who are in Christ are going to precede us or whoever remains 
and they're going to meet Christ in the air. What hope? Have you ever stood by the grave of somebody you love who knew Christ? Wow, what hope? Truth does that. Truth gives you something to stand on. But truth isn't always, it's hopeful, but it, it's not truth that always brings comfort. Where does comfort come from? Because I think in this story, there's, there's also this idea that Jesus' coming brings great comfort. How? We, hope is grounded in truth. Comfort is grounded in presence and in meaning. Often when somebody's in deep pain, we're sure that what they need is Bible verses. I'm not saying Bible verses aren't good. I'm just saying that those are truths that they need to stand on, but what they need to, to find comfort is, is presence, ultimately the presence of God. So how do you find that in these words? So often when we talk about the coming of Jesus, the question that we ask is like, when is this gonna happen? But the Bible doesn't not only ask that question, it doesn't answer that question of the when, but it is full of pictures and promises to explain the why. Why is Jesus coming? Well, in this text that we just read in 1 Thessalonians 4, I want you to listen again to these statements. Listen to the tone of the statements. Listen to the promise. What, what is Jesus saying he's coming for? Here we go. Verse 14. Since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, that's the truth. Why is he coming? Well, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. He continues, verse 17. Then he says, together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Wow. Conclusion. Then we will be with the Lord forever. Wow. So Jesus is not coming to display and show off his power. He doesn't really need to. It's coming, driving in this morning with Ellen and just looking around that, wow, the trees are budding. It's like creation is just coming to life. And you look around and you go, wow, the glory of God is just like everywhere. We just drive by it every day and, and miss it. But Paul is saying, on that day, you will not be able to miss his glory. When Jesus appears, he's not appearing to go, wow. He's just appearing. When you see him in his glory, it says that the plants and the animals and, and every man and woman will bow down and cry out, King of kings and Lord of lords. Not because he tells them to do it, you can't do otherwise. But that's not why he's coming. He's not coming to show his glory. That will happen. He's not coming because he's angry. He's not coming because he wants to wage war. The war has already been fought. It's already been won. He's just coming, it says, for us. He's coming for his children. 
So Paul tells us that, as Paul does, and it's propositional, meaning this is what's going to happen, here it is, boom. Jesus talks about the same thing, but Jesus does it with stories often, Important, because stories and metaphors connect us. Metaphors help us to feel truth. So here's one of the stories that Jesus told. Comes from Matthew chapter 25. Here's the story. Story about a wedding. Now, in Hebrew culture, when there was a wedding, this is kind of how it would play out. There's two families, a man and a woman that, the bride and the bridegroom, their families would get together and they would have a conversation of, is this a good idea? This is what we're thinking about. This is what we're talking about. And if they came to an agreement, then a dowry was paid. A dowry was given for this woman to be given as the bride. Once that was all settled, the engagement, done. But when we think about engagement, we think, well, it's kind of a time to try this out. We'll see. For them, no, no, no. Once that commitment is made, it's done. It's not consummated yet because it's not ready. So this is what happens. The bridegroom goes back to his village and back to his father's house. And often they were kind of set up like a courtyard. And in the courtyard, there were different homes. And, and he's going back to build another home, another room for this new family for he and his wife. So he goes back and prepares a place. And until that's finished, he can't go back. So when's that going to happen? When's the wedding going to happen? When is he going to go get the bride? Don't know. Not until he's done. So in the story, there's these 10 unmarried young girls. And their job is when this happens, they hold lanterns. And they hold lanterns so that, you know, if it gets nighttime, they can't see. It's protection. It's, It's part of the wedding ceremony. And they're at the bridegroom's house. So he goes, gets the bride, brings her back, and their role. They didn't stand there all day, wait, they, but they were always at attention when they would hear the sound of the, the bridegroom going out that they would be ready. So that's what the story is about. But as important as the details in this story is the metaphor that Jesus chose. In the story, Jesus is the bridegroom. Really? God as the lover, the pursuer? Yeah, that's what he's saying. Actually, to be chosen and cherished is the deep need of every human heart. In this story, Jesus could have chosen a military metaphor, but he did. He chose a wedding. What's he trying to say in this story? What he's trying to say is get ready. You don't know when this is going to happen. Get ready for what? Get ready for what you never imagined to be embraced by the king of the universe. So, the last supper, Jesus is explaining to his friends that he was going to be leaving. He's going back to his father. Thomas asked the question that every one of us would have asked. Wow. How do you get there? Jesus said, well, actually in my father's house, there are lots of rooms. If that wasn't true, I wouldn't tell you that it is true. It is true. 
And I am actually going to prepare a place for you. And I will come again and bring you and receive you to myself. Same picture. Wow. It's not surprising then that in the book of Revelation, the end of history is described as a wedding feast. Can I just ask you, is that the way you think about your relationship with Jesus, with God? When you think about that day, the bridegroom is coming for his children, for his bride. Bridegrooms, when their bride comes, looks them right in the eye. When Jesus looks you in the eye, what are you expecting to see in his eye? Maybe, wow, you just thought, He's, he's just going to be really disappointed. Or maybe you just always thought, you know, I mean, he might even be, yeah, just disgusted. Like, oh no. Now the bridegroom is delighted. In fact, he has been preparing this day. He's not expecting you to come perfect. That's why he paid for your stuff. And it says that Jesus has dressed us in his robe of righteousness. And when he sees us, it's with delight. It's, it's actually this dimension that distinguishes biblical faith. Most religions talk about obedience and submission. Important. But they don't talk about intimacy. Jesus says, if you abide in me, I'll abide in you. And it says that at the end of the story, he'll come get us. Wow. What words of comfort. Last thing in, in, this, in the words of Paul is, is a call. That in Jesus' coming, God is calling us. It's sober. That this is how the story is going to end. It's also joyful. Some people say, oh my goodness, you sit around thinking about heaven all the time, like, you gotta live on earth. I love the way C.S. Lewis says it. He says, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who were thinking the most about the next. Aim at heaven, and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you will get neither. So what are you supposed to do? Well, can I just reiterate the words of Chicken Little. The sky actually is falling. And has fallen faster every day. No surprise. Jesus said that is what would happen. So what are we supposed to do in the middle of that? Well, this call is a reminder. The first thing he asks us to do is to wait. Listen to the end of the story. Matthew chapter 25. It's talking about the, the, this wedding. The bridegroom brings back. And, and he says, therefore, keep watch. Because you don't know the day or the hour. How do you... You see, when the Bible talks about waiting, we think of waiting as just kind of sitting there doing nothing. No, no, no. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about this expectant posture. But we don't know when it's going to happen, 
but we live as though that's the most important thing. You see, these, these two groups of, of young girls, one group said, you know what? This is the most important thing. This is what we've been asked to do. So even though we have all these other things to do, we are always going to be ready as though it could happen at this moment. Five others said, oh, you know what? When that day comes, we'll worry about it. Well, the day came. The ones that were waiting were ready. So how do you wait and be ready all at the same time? How do you pursue the kingdom of God and wait? Can I just remind you that actually most of our lives we're waiting? We're always waiting. We're little kids. We see our older sibling go to school. Well, they used to go to school. Now they go in the next room and sit at a computer. But they're off to school. And then you just, now you're waiting so that you're going to be big and go to school. And then, and then you're waiting for high school. And then to get your driver's license. And then the next thing, you just can't wait for college. And then a, your career. And then wait, can't wait to get married and, and have children. And, and then grandchildren. We're always waiting for something. I heard a message Pastor Richard Nathan a couple years ago. I've never forgotten something that he said. He said, the two things that God most often uses to shape us, to deepen our faith, are waiting and pain. That sometimes the only thing that will make us open our hands and surrender to God are pain and waiting. What if... God wants to use the waiting as part of getting us ready for that day. What does that look like? I remember as a kid, my parents announced that we were going to Yellowstone Park. That was far away from where we lived. So you get in the car, you drive all day, you're not there yet. Next day, you get in the car, you're driving, but the next day, sometime in the morning, we looked out and you could see the Rocky Mountains like huge, kind of like what you see in the image, and you're driving, and you're like, wow, we're there. And then you drive for like four hours, and they didn't get any closer. And so you drive for three more hours, and you're still not there yet. And Jesus said, I'm coming. It's imminent. It could happen today. It's already here. It just hasn't happened yet. When you're driving and you're driving and you're driving and then you drive into these towns and you're driving through this town and there's all these houses and apartment buildings and water tower and all these big things and, and if you'd stop in the middle of town and then, and then turn around and put your back to the mountains, all this stuff, wow, it's huge, like this water tower and this, wow. But then you turn around again and you see it with the mountains and you're like, wow. That's not so big. That's what it means to wait. That Jesus said, yeah, there's going to be some really huge things. There's going to be persecution. I was just talking to somebody after the first service this morning saying that just in this last year, they believe that 
almost a million people were murdered for their faith in Christ last year. Jesus doesn't say it's going to be easy. He says it's, it's going to be difficult times. And they might seem like they could just crush you. But keep your eyes fixed. There's something much bigger and much more important at the end of the story. Wait. Second thing he says seems kind of counterintuitive. He says to rejoice. Jesus, two times, in Luke chapter 21, Matthew chapter 24, I believe it is, he's having a conversation with his disciples, and they're asking this question. Jesus, okay, like, when is this day coming? When is this going to happen? And Jesus says, well, there's going to be signs in the heavens. There's nations going to rise against nations. There's going to be earthquakes. There's going to be pandemics. It's it's just going to get ugly. And, and then he says, when all this happens in, in Luke 21, he says, people will be just apprehensive about what's coming. Does that sound familiar at all? Wow. So Jesus says, that's what's going to happen. And when it happens, what are we supposed to do? Well, there's a couple things that he doesn't say that we should do. Number one, don't go hide. That's not one of the options. Second thing that you won't find in there is he doesn't say, like, get on Facebook and find some conspiracy and get it out there. Just make people afraid. He doesn't say that. Strange read an article a couple months ago in Christianity Today, and they were talking about this time that we're living in where literally there's almost a new conspiracy every day. Mars is coming down and it's going to crash, and this is going to happen. This back, I mean, there's just endless conspiracies. So the article was talking about that and made the observation that strangely, the people who seem to be the most taken by all this are Christians. Really? I mean, what if the conspiracy was actually true? It changes absolutely nothing. Jesus says, when these things begin to take place, verse 28, stand up, lift up your head. That's from the Psalms. What that means is praise him, rejoice, because when that happens, that means that Satan realizes the end is coming and he's going crazy. Rejoice. Because I'm coming. He not say rejoice because it's easy. He says rejoice because I'm coming. Fear and joy can't walk together. Last thing he says is persevere. The days before that day will be dark. But the day is coming. He says, keep walking. Keep, keep, keep that in view. Keep God's glory in view. The end of the story that Jesus told is actually very sobering. In the story, it says that the bridegroom went and he got the bride and he came back. And while he was gone, five of the young girls realized, well, oh my goodness, we don't have any oil for our lamp. So they went out to get oil. And, and when the bridegroom got back, they weren't there. And he went in with the bride and the, the other five young bridesmaids. And then it says that the door was shut. 
So the, the five young girls get there and they're pounding on the door. Open the door. And, and the bridegroom says, well, actually, the time for being ready is no more. So, so how do you get ready? What, what, what are you supposed to do? Well, Paul says it very clearly. We believe that Jesus Christ not only came, that he died, and that he rose again, and that he's coming back. He's not saying you know, kind of intellectually grab onto that. He's saying, that's true, and, and you need to make that the focus of your faith. You need to shape your life around that. That's what it looks like to be ready. But even when you do that, it doesn't make the road easy. It just makes it clear. So he says, persevere. Let me close with this story. When I was in college, I was going through a time where I, I sensed God was nudging me, calling me. I didn't really know what that meant. I was just walking through a difficult time, and I, I went to our church one night for a young adult group, and a guy by the name of Ron Hutchcraft was speaking, and I, I don't remember most of what he said, but I do remember a story he told at the end that I've never forgotten, and I'll do my best to tell it from memory. I told a story about a, a young couple. This was back in the early 1900s. It felt God calling them to to go and serve him in the southern part of Africa. Now, I, I precisely say the southern part because I think a lot of people, when they think about Africa, it's just like this, it's huge. I mean, we lived in West Africa for 25 years. Can't tell you how many times somebody would say to me, oh, you're from Africa. Hey, I know this guy, Tim, who lives down in southern Africa. That's like as far away as Hawaii. Why do I say all that? I say that because where they went was, was really far. And a lot of times in that day, uh, people would go and maybe get sick and, and they wouldn't come back. Or they would go and there wasn't a lot of airplane travel in that day and so they would just stay for 20, 30 years. Well, that's what happened with this young couple. They went, they served the Lord, translated the Bible, after like 35 years, they decided it was time to return to the United States. So they wrote ahead, but I mean, some of the, the letters would take eight weeks to get across. They didn't know if anybody knew that they were coming. They didn't even know exactly the day, but they just wanted them to know they were coming. So the day comes, they get on this boat. The ship's, that ship had like different levels. The economy level was on the lower part of the boat, and you didn't leave your economy to go up above who, who was up there, you don't know. Well, they didn't know that on that ship was President Roosevelt. He had gone to Africa on a hunting safari and was coming home on the same ship. So they pull into the harbor in New York and they're down in their room and they look out through the little round portal and oh my goodness, there's like a band out there. There's like thousands of people. There's confetti and wow, we weren't expecting this. So they finished packing their suitcases and started making their way up to the deck. And by the time they got up there, the, the noise was silent. And by the time they got to the stairs to walk down, yeah, the crowd had dispersed. The band was gone. The confetti is laying on the ground. There's just a few people still standing. They look out and they, they don't even recognize anybody. And they're walking down and 
to no one in particular, the husband says, wow, 35 years. Nobody even here to welcome us home. It's at that moment that he heard the whisper of his Lord, whisper in his ear, son, you ain't home yet. Persevere. That is the most important day in the story. Jesus said it's going to be like in the days of Noah. People mock Noah every day. Seriously, no, it hasn't rained in years. The only day that you needed to know that Noah was right was on the day it rained. The day Jesus is coming, it's too late to get ready. Now is the time. Let me pray for us. Jesus, wow, this is a great word. What hope. Sometimes in the middle of, of just the, yeah, the, the difficulties and the, it just seems like the wrong team is winning and, and when is this gonna happen? And the reminder that, wow, the one who said this is faithful and he will do it. The day is coming. I just pray that there are those here this morning that, wow, you just need a, a, a wind of hope in their sails, that, that you, Holy Spirit, would just blow that wind. Some maybe just need the comfort of God, the reminder that he is present. He's not just present, he's not just present on that day, but he's with us right now. By, by his spirit. And would you just pour out your presence? In Jesus' name, amen.